Welcome to a special edition of Run This World. I'm your host, Nicole DeBoom. You're about to listen to an episode in the 10-part Touched by Suicide series. Trigger warning, this episode may include discussions about suicide, mental illness, substance abuse, and self-harm. If these topics are sensitive to you, proceed with caution. It may also contain strong language and is intended for an adult audience. If you are feeling suicidal, thinking about hurting yourself, or are concerned that someone you know may be in danger of hurting themselves, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. The hotline is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and is staffed by certified crisis response professionals. Please be sure to share this podcast with anyone who needs to hear it right now. Thank you for listening. Welcome to Touch by Suicide, a podcast series inspired by Steve Tarpinian, who died by suicide in 2015. I'm your narrator, Michael Lovato. In this series, we share perspectives from people who have been touched by suicide in different ways. Our goal is to raise awareness and reduce the stigma surrounding suicide and mental health issues. And to always remember, you are not alone. Today we hear the perspective of a mom. Her name is Ruth Tepler-Roth. In 2012, Ruth lost her 21-year-old son Jonathan to suicide. Ruth was devastated when Jonathan took his life. She felt so alone. She remarked at the time Jonathan died, treatment for mental health was in the dark ages, much like cancer treatment was in the 1950s. Over time, Ruth has learned to share Jonathan's story openly, which is the only way we can break the stigma about suicide. For parents who are listening, this interview is so important because Ruth had no idea Jonathan was struggling with suicidal thoughts until he attempted suicide the first time. We may think we know what's going on with our children, but we don't always know until something bad happens. Ruth talks about warning signs, but forgot to mention an important one, so she asked us to include it here. Many people who are suffering self-medicate with drugs and alcohol in their quest to end their pain. If you notice this sign or the others mentioned in this interview, intervene before it's too late. If you or someone you know is displaying suicide warning signs, please call the Suicide Prevention Hotline at 800-273-8255. And now, let's hear from Ruth and Nicole. Ruth, I am very, very, very excited to talk to you today. And not because the topic is fun and exciting, but because I believe you are somebody who through a situation that occurred in your own life has now become a very powerful voice in this world of mental health and suicide. So thank you for sharing your thoughts with me today. I'm pleased to. You know, I think we should open up by talking about your son, Jonathan. Okay. I will say that um, Jonathan had challenges in life. Um, He had a language speech delay and um, certain processing. He was not athletic. Um, And yet, as he grew up, he overcame these things to do really well. Uh, he he got into a selective college. He 
had a very high grade point. Um, he didn't get extra time on tests. He just did it. He uh, became captain of the wrestling team and a champion in his weight class. He mentored other young wrestlers who needed him. So um, he is not from the outside, the kind of person that anyone would imagine. Oh, and he had many, many friends. Uh, no one would have imagined that he was carrying a burden inside of him or an illness inside of him that skewed his um, sense of reality, of his own reality. Uh, he was very close with his family. We were very, he and I were very close. So he really didn't fit whatever profile that people seem to have in their heads about someone who would uh, die by suicide. I think that's an important uh, point to make. What profile do you think people have in their heads? Well, I think it's not just people. I think clinicians as well have a, sometimes have a skewed view. They, they say uh, they believe that the person has a dysfunctional family life, bad relationship with their parents. Perhaps they're isolated. Perhaps they, you know, uh, can't get out of bed in the morning all the time, you know, that's not necessarily the case. People walk around, people who are not suicidal, walk around life. Oftentimes, you're not feeling great, but you have a smile on your face. It's just all the more pronounced with someone who, who is struggling with, ment with a mental illness. And that sense of aloneness, that sense of isolation makes it, and, and shame, because you feel you have to hide it, exponentially compounds what they are dealing with. Um, that's what I think. But I think professionals as well, they look for particular signs. Um, does the person have a bad relationship with their family? Um, is the person not sleeping? Is the person not, you know, but the, the relationships with the world or their ability to transcend their challenges is a big one for clinicians. And here, you know, you have uh, a young man who, who, did not fit that profile. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, when did you realize that Jonathan was struggling with mental health, health issues? Um, it's going to sound strange, but the very first moment that I understood, I, I always knew he was a little anxious and he was seeing a therapist for that. But the very first moment that I understood the actual severity was when I found him in his first, after his first suicide attempt. And then I was, it, it sort of was a shock. And none of us realized this. Um, looking back, there were clues, but nothing, if you're not knowledgeable, that I could really point to. But that was really the first time when, when I discovered him after his first attempt. It was the first time I realized the severity of the illness. Yeah. Are you able to talk about that day and what you went through? Um, I think that, um, it, it, yes, because it was, it was a tremendous, tremendous shock. Um, I think that it was clear he didn't uh, want 
he, he meant it. This wasn't a cry for help. The severity and the violence of his attempt clearly showed that he meant business. Um, and uh, it was, as I said, an enormous shock to my system to the extent that when I found him, I was frozen in place. It, it, it took me to say the actual words, I have to call 911 in order to get myself moving to do that. Um, so it, it, it really was um, tremendously, uh, I guess, I don't even know how to say it. I mean, it was just like um, out of the blue, a tsunami, you know, just came down, you know, and uh, you just didn't know what to do. You know, it, it, it was really, that's the kind of feeling it was like the silence and the earth cracked and, you know, then you move forward, you know, uh, to try to do the best you can. And like I said, there were, if I think back about it, there were some, there were things he said that, you know, oh, I'm not going to live long. And I said, well, how do you know? Nobody knows how long they're going to live. <laughs> Rather than understanding what he's saying, I'm sitting here saying, you know, like I didn't get it, you know, or, um, uh, we had a wonderful relationship and I would say to him, oh, Jonathan, you are, when he did something, at one point he did something particularly wonderful or kind for, for, for a friend. I said, wow, John, you are, you are the love of my life. You are my sun, moon, and stars. And he said, don't say that. Please don't say that. I, that's too much for me. You know, now I didn't realize that at the time, but he was thinking, I'm going to be killing myself at some point. <laughs> and I don't want her to feel that way, you know, about me. Um, but I didn't know that at the time. And, um, it, you know, so when he actually had his first attempt, it was mind blowing. Uh, I really had no, no idea. So you got through the first attempt and you came out the other side and now you realized all of you realized that he had some deeper mental health issues. And at that time, did you say, okay, this, we're going to tackle these. We're, we're going to come out of this. Like how did, how did the, the next few weeks and months look? Well, I mean, he had to recover and we had to, you know, I learned something very important, uh, and that is that uh, treatment of mental illness, serious, severe mental illness is in the dark ages. It's like where cancer was in the 1950s. Um, you know, uh, it's nowhere. And uh, there really, it is extraordinary, the scarcity of, clinicians who know what they're doing and who understand it. And, um, and that's a very sad thing. And it's, it's also terrifying that if you have a, a family member in inpatient treatment, uh, Jonathan was an inpatient after that first attempt. And you know what? I was terrified when I went to visit him inpatient because he was the sanest person there and he would be getting ideas from these other people. And I, I was like, oh my God, we got to get him out of here, you know? Um, so 
the scarcity of programs, the scarcity of clinicians who know how to deal with this. Um, the, the, you don't even know who knows good resources. I don't know that, that it exists. I think you have to be careful. I myself, when I was struggling after Jonathan died, I remember seeking out clinicians to help me with my grief. One was worse than the next, you know? Um, and it's, it, it's, they don't know. It's a soft science. Uh, so now I have a list of people who I know have been recommended, who people have vetted, you know, but at the time that we were trying to help him, it's amazing. There was one person, one doctor, when he was on the medical ward after his first attempt, the psychiatrist who, who came as a, as a consultant, she said, he's got bipolar two disorder, but no other clinician who knew him, one who knew him for years, one who observed him on the ward for th three, four weeks, another person, those others who knew him over an extended period of time, they said, nah, he doesn't have that. He's got, you know, something. Well, you know what? He did have, you know, who was I to believe, you know, but he was such a good actor. He was able so well to go through life, except in his moments of depression, that, you know, that it was not clear to people. And so those are the things that I learned that it is a, it's a black hole. It is unfortunate, but that's how it is. And it's not viewed as uh, by the medical community as a physical illness, which it is. And I've since read a lot about many physical illnesses. I count mental illness as physical illness. I don't think mental illness should be a term, but just for purposes of our conversation, the fact is that there are many, many physical illnesses that have behavioral symptomology. COVID, we're in COVID now. There are people who have COVID who have behavioral symptomology. The fact that it affects taste and smell is an indication that it affects the brain. So, and my husband's a physician. He has told me of people who come out of induced comas because uh, he works in a hospital who have severe emotional reactions after, you know, with a COVID uh, uh, diagnosis and treatment. So it's all physical, but there's this um, artificial demarcation in the medical community because ostensibly behavioral, we can control, but we really can't because it's not behavioral. It's physical. <laughs> the behavior is just a symptom. So I wish that the world could see it in that way. It, it, maybe it's a subtle shift in thinking, but that's the truth of it. The behavior is just a symptom of the physical. Um, and unfortunately, if you look at funding streams, the NIMH has an infinitesimal budget compared to the NIH, the research dollars, you know, there, it's, it's a very difficult thing to get appropriate, adequate funding for and to get the right thinking for. So this is all what I have learned in the past nine years. But if you're asking me in the aftermath of Jonathan, that first attempt, uh, we fell into a black hole. There was no help. He wanted us to keep it secret. We did because he was ashamed and we didn't know anything. We thought we were the only people going through this in our community. Um, so we agreed, 
I didn't understand at the time that we were just supporting his sense of shame that way. That we should have said, whoa, 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 this is not your fault. There's nothing to be ashamed of. That, you know, we didn't understand. So there's a few lessons that I've learned since that time. But in the immediate aftermath, we fell into this black hole. We we had nowhere to turn. We all we saw was ineffective, inappropriate uh, stuff, and we allowed shame to enter into the situation. So that was my immediate. And reaction. how long after his first attempt was he successful? Five months. Wow. Yeah. Not enough time to turn the corner with your, you know, embracing what was happening with him and moving forward on it onto a path that could have taken him a different direction. There wasn't enough time. There weren't enough resources and people didn't talk about it. Correct. It's only after he died when he died, my husband, because he had had, he was in the hospital and we had to, after the first attempt, we had to figure out what we're going to say to people. He's in the hospital. And we made up this story. Um, and then we it got even worse. We said, oh, my goodness, if he's getting better, we have to have a different face to the world. We have to act like, oh, he's getting better. Everything is better. So we were in this twilight zone weirdness where we had to act one way. So it's like you leave the house and it's showtime, you know, um, and so that was terrible as well. So we as well were isolated and in shame and he was isolated and in shame and it was terrible. But what happened was uh, after he died, my husband and I said, are we going to be truthful about this? And he said, hell yes, because the pain of the isolation was too much and I could not go through life. And I said, this way, our friends will be able to comfort us appropriately. We won't be actors in the world. We'll be able to be who we are because that, that pain of being isolated was overwhelming. So we were open and honest. And that's when all of a sudden, all the calls started coming in of people who are struggling with it. And I had no idea that so many, there are so many, there were so many at the time. Now it's even worse, but there were so many. So those were the, the you know, I'm so glad we were open about it. You know, you mentioned warning signs, and I think this is really important to talk about. And they may, there may be warning signs that you've learned about afterward that Jonathan didn't even exhibit, but can you share some warning signs for, for people who, you know, know someone who may be on the edge? Well, I think if it's parents or friends, you need to be on the lookout for changes. Um, change in friends, change in moods, change in sleeping patterns, change in eating patterns, um, change in irritability in their, in, in their stability of, of, of mood. So I'll say that while he had many, many friends, all of a sudden I was like a little uncomfortable with some of them, you know, um, while he, uh, you know, he would sleep, his sleeping patterns were totally off. Um, he always had a very, very sweet, kind disposition. And maybe once or twice, he just got, was crying, you know, and I couldn't understand, you know, I'm not a good person. And that, you know, that was unusual for him. 
Or there was one time when he got very angry about something and that as well was very unusual. So I would say changes in sleeping, in eating, in friends, in, in ability to concentrate or do well in school when they always did well in school. Those are, those are big, big things to, to look at. You also mentioned acting because part of the problem is that the person who is struggling feels that they can't share their struggles, so they act. I know that Jonathan wasn't alone in this. We know Steve also suffered from or, or, or felt the need to act. Um, can you talk a little more about how do we know if somebody's acting? Can you tell? You know, if, if the person doesn't want you to know, you won't know. I myself, as I, I, I mentioned to you before we started this, I myself, you know, this is a, 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 those of us who, who are living with the, 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 the suicide of a loved one, you know, we have our ups and downs as well. But, you know, we have our relationships, whether even with our immediate family, with our friends, when we're feeling down, we don't, we don't show that we're down. I think any normal person, regular person, I don't want to say normal, but anybody, sometimes you have a bad, you're in a bad mood or you, you don't feel quite right, but you don't walk around with that persona. You, um, you know, you're doing your best. You're trying your best. Um, what is fascinating to me about a Jonathan or a Steve is that they were able to exact such high levels of performance, you know, and motivate people that, you know, they were able to connect with people to help them become their best. They were able to make themselves perform and it's mind boggling. Um, so how is anyone to know? If we understand ourselves that when we're not in the greatest of moods or whatever, we act. Everybody does, you know, nobody wants to be a whiner. They themselves, and they, and I don't think they had an appreciation. Like they thought they were all alone. They thought they really are bad people. They thought, you know, so how much more so did they act? It's, it put on a face. And it's, it's shameful. You're not supposed to be weak or whiny or so they really expended a lot of effort. And if, you, I don't think you can tell. I've had friends say to me, I said, Oh, you know, I really, I'm coming out of something. And my friends have said to me, wow, what a terrible friend I am. I couldn't even tell. I said, well, yeah, you couldn't tell because I didn't tell you and I didn't show it. It's the same thing. He, he and I were very close, uh, my son and I. We would talk for hours. Um, everything was wonderful. I remember saying, when I said to him, you know, you're my sun, moon, and stars. <laughs> I found he had written sun, moon, and stars, you know. Um, you know, we, we were very closely related. We talked. He didn't want me to know. So how is anyone to know if you don't want them? You know, it's, it's not easy. You it's know. not easy. It sounds like the only way to open that door sometimes is to normalize the conversation about asking people, are you ever depressed? Do you ever feel weird? Have you ever thought 
about doing something to hurt yourself. Like opening that, making that conversation normal might be about the only way in when people want, don't want you to know. Do you think you're the only person who's feeling this? Do you, you know, do you find meaning in your life? Do you, you know, do you feel satisfaction? I mean, there are a lot of questions to ask about helping them connect. Do you have hope that whatever you're struggling with, you can help yourself? That's really huge. You know, do you have hope? Do you believe? Um, Because when I was feeling very depressed, that was the thing that I felt. I said, oh, this is how he felt. There was no hope. There was no way out. You know, um, that that's imagine I when I think about that going through life like that, like there's no hope. I'll never it'll never I'll never feel differently. And being ashamed of it and hiding it, feeling like you have to hide it. So, yes, asking all those questions and saying, no, it that's I know you don't believe that that's the case. But the key here is for you to accept that you have these highs and lows and to believe that there's a way you can manage this. I will help you. Let's see. We'll go to this doctor. If that one doesn't work, we'll go to another one. But there is a way. You know, take my hope. Let me help you. It might not work. But as you said, that's the only way, I think. Prior to Jonathan's death, what were your perceptions of suicide? Um. I certainly never imagined that that word could ever have anything to do with me, you know, or that I would have any association with that. Um, I, it never occurred to me. It wasn't even in, in the recesses of my mind. Um, And um, I didn't understand. I didn't I didn't even begin to understand the depth or even the complexity of emotions that a person could have that would drive them to that decision. I had total ignorance, complete and total ignorance, and did not feel any that it had any relevance to my life. And nor did I think I knew anyone who, who had taken their, you know, who had killed themselves. Turns out I, I did know but the families were not open. It's only after my son and I was open that people approached me and said, yes, you know. So I didn't know that it had anything to do with me, you know. Some people have said that they feel suicide is a selfish act. How do you feel about that statement? It's ignorant. It's ignorant. I mean, selfish, why? Because the people that leave behind suffer. But that isn't their that isn't their goal. And they don't believe that they believe that they're actually doing you a big favor. You know, when Jonathan, when he left us his um, a note, he said, I love you. I love you all so much. Um, but you're You're going to be fine. I just can't go on. You know, he really believed that. Um, so people say, yes, yeah, selfish. I've heard also it's, it's an act of cowardice. You can't face the world. Well, come on. These are people who every day that they were alive showed in immense bravery in dealing with the world. Um, 
It is just, uh, you know, how many people can deal with a level of pain, physical pain, you know? No, they reach for painkillers at the drop of a hat, you know? We have an, we have a, uh, an opioid epidemic going on for that. So is it selfish? Um, it's just, it's ignorance. People don't understand. Um, and look, God bless them. It means that it can't fathom, you know, being in that much pain, you know? Did you blame anyone for Jonathan's death? Um, I, to this day, have uh, a lot of disdain for the uh, psychiatrists and um, mental health clinicians. I think they, I understand how I was fooled, but I don't understand how you guys were fooled, you know, by him. I don't get it. And it's, and when I called them and said, you know, I don't know, he said this, do you think? And they'd say, no, no, no. And I was made to feel like I'm being ridiculous. Turns out I was not, you know, but I, I wanted to believe, you know, I said, do you think he could be? And they go, no, no, you know, so of course I much rather believe. Um, then there was an institution that I went to, Columbia, um, where I wanted to get him into a specific program. And I am a Columbia graduate and my husband got his medical degree and PhD from Columbia. You know, we revere the institution and I wanted to get him into a particular program. And they initially said, okay. And then they said, no, the lethality of his attempt makes him not appropriate for this. And I, and I, and I, uh, I said, well, can you help me find a place? I mean, wh what do I do? And it was like, well, we don't really have anything. Okay, you know, we'll call you, you know, we'll find. And I, I wrote to these people and I said, you know, you're interested in your statistics. You want to be able to say, we've had success with this patient cohort. And my son might've fallen out of that. You didn't try to help me. And I hold you responsible for it partially responsible for this outcome. I hold his doctor somewhere in the middle of this. He needed to get a flu shot. He needed, you know, I took him to his doctor and I said, Jonathan, you have to be honest with your doctor. He did. And I said to the guy, can you help us? Do you know it? No, don't know anything. Didn't not. A, okay. The fact that he did not have resources, but that he didn't say, I am with you on this. I will try. I'm going to research it and I'll get back to you. So I hold the medical community and the psychiatric community somewhat. I'm, I'm angry with them. I blame them. Yes. Might not have been a different outcome, even with the information, because as I said, this is like a black hole, this, you know, so I, but I do hold them responsible and I, and I am angry um, about it. And uh, you know, it's got to change. It's got to change. Um, I, his, his school, the school that he was in, the college that he was in, um, they just don't have adequate ability to, 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 to diagnose. Diagnosis is key and treatment is key. And, um, and so I, I am angry with them and I hold them a little responsible. Um, so we were ill-equipped. And through these experiences, when people call me, I am able to direct them and help them.
even understanding that the outcome might not be what you want or what you hope for, but at least their eyes are open and they understand they are not to blame and they understand that this is, you know, the way it is right now. Hopefully it will change. What do you say to Jonathan today? Um, I, I, you know, I say, what a loss, what a loss that you are not in this world because of the goodness and kindness and the contribution and, and what a friend he was and what an incredible person. It seems like many people who, who die by suicide were incredible people. Um, with a heart that as big as all outdoors. Um, what, how sad that, you know, the world really is, you know, is poorer for, for you not being here. And I'm poorer for you not being here. Um, but I feel privileged to have had a child like that. Um, I used to say to myself, how is it possible? I produced this incredible kid, you know, I mean, I couldn't get over it. But I, I feel, wow, it is extraordinary that, that I had this guy for 21 years, how amazing he was. So I'm just sorry that he's not in the world. He, he would have been unbelievable um, in many, many ways. Hmm. What do you think we can do to prevent more suicides? It's a, it's a tall order. Uh, you hit upon it. You know, we, we, have to, we have to make it acceptable to talk about mental illness. And we have to make it acceptable to talk about suicide um, in the same way that it is you know, it used to be if you had HIV, you know, oh my God, you know, you can't, but now, hey, it's, it's a virus. People live with it, you know, um, it, you know, it's a, it's a, people need to um, understand that it is a physical illness. I, I, I almost wish we didn't have the phrase mental illness, you know, um, the brain is part of the body for God's sake, you know, um, so I, I think uh, attacking the stigma is so important. Um, that's number one. And number two, um, it would help people feel less isolated. And, um, and I think schools are very, very important first uh, front line. Uh, I think schools need to figure out how to help the kids be aware of this and they need to talk about it with the kids. Um, we have to demystify it and take the shame out of mental illness and, um, you know, and, and, and give people a toolbox. Where do you go when you have feelings like this? Where do you go when you hear your friends saying stuff that worries you? Um, I, I really wish that that could happen. I'm sorry you lived in a silo with this. It's so brutal. It really is. But things have changed in 
in nine, 10 years, I, I really, I think partially they've changed because it's so rampant now. And then we got COVID on top of it and kids are really suffering. So it's almost undeniable at this point. Maybe that's what needed to happen. You know, I don't know. But um, yeah, thankfully it's more out in the open. Like there never would have been a podcast like this <laughs> 10 years ago. So look how far we've come with that. You are just like an angel warrior for this thing. Uh, you are, <laughs> you know, this, this is what you should be doing. Well, we all got to try. <laughs> we all have got to try. That is the truth of it. So I, I really, I, I it's amazing what, what Jean has done and um, by bringing Steve to life. I've never met Steve. I've never even met Jean in person, but I feel like I know, I know Steve. Steve is Jonathan. Um, the goodness that comes out, you know, it is extraordinary what he achieved, what he motivated others to do. So I, I feel like I know him so well. Um, and uh, I applaud Jean for what she's been doing. And I think this is an incredible project. And we it has to be attacked in a million different ways. Writing, podcast, uh, speaking. It's so, it's, it, it's life-saving. It is. People. It will be. And it is. Yes. Yes. I think, I think, you know what, yeah. for people who are survivors of suicide loss, mm -hmm. we are the walking wounded. And I think that it's important for us to have each other. It is the great equalizer. Um, no matter how different our backgrounds are or where we come from, um, we understand each other in a way uh, it, it's, it, it, while it is a physical illness, somehow the survival of it, of those of us who survived it, it, it's a different mechanism, perhaps because of the stigma. I don't know, but we, we do tend to blame ourselves. Why didn't I, why didn't I, I should have, I could have, you know, maybe it's our mind's way of trying to get the person back or have a do over. I don't know. But um, I'd say, I want to say to people who have survived uh, the loss of someone to suicide, it is a loss like no other. And um, we have to learn to reach out to each other as well. And we have to be kind to ourselves. We have to learn to hold ourselves in with, with kindness and with gentleness and to, to be there for each other. Uh, that's important too. When someone dies by suicide, it is common for the survivors to erase that part of their journey and not talk about how their loved one died. When this happens, it perpetuates the stigma around suicide, which makes it harder for people to reach out when they need help. Steve Tarpinian died by suicide in 2015, but he also left a beautiful legacy of love and support to many people. By sharing a story and talking openly about suicide, it is our goal to help people who are struggling reach out for the help they need before it is too late. And by offering a glimpse into the perspectives of those who are touched by suicide, we hope to help those who are struggling with suicide or are suicide loss survivors. Please remember, 
you are not alone. If you or someone you know is displaying suicide warning signs, please call the Suicide Prevention Hotline at 800-273-8255. Thank you for listening. Please share this podcast. You never know who might need to hear it right now.